my name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host today for New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm speaking today with Adam Malka, who's an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma, and we'll be talking about his new book, which is out just this year with the University of North Carolina Press, called The Men of Mobtown, Policing Baltimore in the Age of Slavery and Emancipation. Hi, Adam. Welcome. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for talking to us. To get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a historian? Uh, how I became a historian? Uh, or why you got interested in history? Well, when I was in college, I found myself gravitating to the history classes more and more. And every time I signed up for something else that seemed interesting, I would almost inevitably drop it and then sign up for other history courses. So I figured that maybe maybe I should keep doing this. And then I applied to grad school and moved to Madison, Wisconsin after having never set foot in the state. And uh, I don't know, some 10 years later, I found myself as a professional historian. So it's not the sexiest of stories. But <laughs> but it's good and honest. Yeah. No, I, I really enjoy the narrative components of history. And I always found those stories to be the most intriguing. And in le- and so I, I wanted to keep doing it. So once you got to Madison or, or before that in college, what drew you to this type of topic? I assume it took you a little while before you settled on this precise one. But yeah, it took me a while to get to this topic. I, when I first arrived in grad school, I thought I was going to do something completely different. And in the first year or two, in the first year there, I, I started to shift away from what I thought I'd come to do, which was 20th century foreign policy, <laughs> if you can believe it. And, and I found myself gravitating back into to the 19th century, to the you know early to mid 19th century. And I didn't actually come across this type of topic until the dissertation phase of grad school. I wrote my, I, I worked earlier in in my career as a, uh, or at least in my graduate career, I worked, you know, on the African diaspora, on, on migration emigration to Haiti from African American communities in the 1820s. And then it wasn't until I was trying to come up with a dissertation topic that I started to think about what, what was most interesting to me about the books that I liked the most. And I started to read around street life, public, uh, just the creation of public identities. And from there, I, I stumbled across policing and I started, and I found that to be an intriguing topic. So like, how did policing work before there were police forces? And especially how did it work in a place where race was such a salient category? Of course, race is a salient category everywhere, but it, you know, what, it, what about in a place where there was a large African-American population and in particular a free African-American mm-hmm. population. And that's, you know, that that's, and from there, I just, I moved to Baltimore and started reading uh, documents. Mm-hmm. And so why did you pick Baltimore? You've sort of touched on this a little bit, but both, why did you pick it when you started your research and why is it a particularly interesting place to be thinking about these questions of policing and race in the state, um, which are all questions that you get into in your book. We haven't really talked about the overview of the book yet, but we'll start with Baltimore and then move into that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the, the answer to those two questions is related. 
I picked Baltimore in large part because I wanted to write about race and policing in the same story. And in particular, I wanted to write about free black people and how the rise of a police force might have been part of the, of a story of racial policing. And the way that the literature had, had been approached was that you generally had stories of the rise of police forces in the deep North, you know, from Boston to New York, sometimes maybe Philadelphia, which was not the deep North, but the the North. And then you would have stories of vigilantism in the, in the deep South, you know, like South Carolina is a state that doesn't have a prison until reconstruction. You don't have professional police forces in large portions of the South. And so the police literature had been Northern focused and the vigilante literature had been Southern focused and Baltimore, both analytically and geographically, allowed me to do both in the same story. And the reason I picked Baltimore in particular was because it had the largest free black population in the U.S. in the 19th century. And it was the only city among those cities that had large. Well, it wasn't the only city, but it also was it was closer institutionally to those northern cities. But it had it has some demographics uh, similarities to those southern cities. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. One of the things reading your discussion of of why Baltimore in your book uh, that I wondered is why haven't historians talked more about Baltimore? And I should say this with a caveat that I am a 20th century historian. So if they are talking a ton about Baltimore and I just don't realize it, uh, excuse me for that question. But, um, you know, your argument seems really logical for why Baltimore is so important. And yet it seems like somewhere like New Orleans gets a lot of attention as this sort of interesting, different place in the antebellum period for free blacks instead of Baltimore. Yeah. I, I mean, New Orleans, well, I should say New Orleans is really interesting and it, and it, and it is well-deserving of the attention it's received. But, but Baltimore has started to receive quite a bit more attention in the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, in the, in the late 90s, there was a handful of books that came out. And more recently, like 10 years ago, um, Seth Rockman's book, Scraping By, like, um, you know, was, it was a wonderful study of, of working class, uh, really of, like, of, of day labor and, wage, and poor wage laborers and the creation of... of of, an, of the economy through this bottom-up perspective. And and Baltimore has started to receive a fair amount of in, in attention, especially with the, the Johns Hopkins uh, PhD program. There's there's quite a few fascinating studies come, that are on the way. And, you know, not necessarily about policing, but but just more generally about American life. But you're right, like it certainly pales in comparison to the attention given to Philadelphia and to New York, and part of that probably has, I mean, a lot of that probably has as much to do with where funding is and the institutional, like, where the institutional world of the early republic it lays, right? I mean, you've got a lot of a lot of money and a lot of resources in Philadelphia. That's where Shear is based, and, and, and so there's obviously going to be, and there's a lot more, lot more records, mm-hmm. Um in those places, but you know, and, and there were some challenges to writing about the Baltimore Police Department, or really just policing in Baltimore more, more generally. Like I, I had trouble tracking down criminal court records before 1870 in Baltimore City, and 
And in the time I was writing this book, they, they transferred their archives from one location to another. And, and actually, the state took over the archives and became a little bit more professionalized. But yeah, I, I, I think that there's a fair amount of work on Baltimore and it's growing. But it's fair to say that other cities have received quite a bit more attention. And in fact, in the history of policing and police historiography, New Orleans had received quite considerably more attention than Baltimore, which is fine. Um, <laughs> it's fine. It allowed me to write this book. Yeah, great. Uh, opened up some opportunities there. Okay, so let's, I want to talk more about your research a little bit later. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about how these two stories do come together. So your book is about um, these these two different types of policing, right? Vig- vigilante policing and professional police forces and how they come together and how they relate to each other. So could you just give us a the kind of big picture overview of what that relationship is like or was like? Yes. Uh, I, I this, The book does two things. It traces the rise of professional policing in Baltimore, as well as the, the creation of a, of like a more reformative uh, penal system, like, you know, spearheaded by the, the, the Maryland penitentiary, but also with some various other institutions attached to it or related to it, like, you know, from the almshouse to the house of refuge for free, mostly for young, for boys, for juvenile delinquents, although they didn't call them that in the, in the 19th century. And so it tells that more traditional story, but then it also puts, it puts that, the book puts that story into dialogue with a less traditional story of policing, which is what you, how you describe vigilante policing, which, which is what in some, in most of our his, histories of police predates the professional police force. And in fact, you know, and for a good reason, because before you have professional police forces, which come about in the mid 19th century in many Northern and mid Atlantic cities and, 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 and as well as in a place like New Orleans, you have ordinary people, ordinary citizens, um, predominantly white men, though not exclusively doing a fair amount of the police work on their own. And I argue that instead of replacing those vigilante policemen, like most histories would suggest that simply the rise of the professional police force and the rise of the, uh, you know, reformative penitentiary replaces that older, kind of less professional, like more amateur system that the so-called like pre-modern or pre or amateur system coexists rather like it, it coexists rather clearly with those professional institutions, especially when it comes to per- policing race and policing free people of color. And and so I kind of turn that argument on its head that that we simply replace the vigilante with the policeman. In fact, I argue that the policeman was in some ways a new version of the vigilante. And when it came to policing free African-Americans in a variety of sites from work sites to to their homes to more generally on the streets, that vigilantes and white male vigilantes and white male policemen worked hand in hand and that only increased over time Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about maybe some examples of this and in your book uh you're talking about um 
you talk a lot about property, which we should probably touch on, and there's different types of property. And you also talk about some different sites. Um, you talk about workplaces, of course, um, and you talk about homes, as you just mentioned, uh, as places where this kind of policing is going on or where there's these multiple types of policing where is going on. Um, and so I thought maybe we could just pick one and talk a little bit about a couple of examples. Um, so uh, how about the household, since that is something that um, probably has some modern um, sim- similarities that might be interesting for listeners. So could you talk a little bit about how vigilantes were acting in this um, arena and how police were acting and kind of how you can see and your book traces out very clearly, of course, with, you know, evidence as, as historians like to do of the yeah, ways we, in which these work like together. To <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we like that to be there. So we dabble, we dabble in the sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So in order to, I mean, I, I suppose then I should talk about like why property is, is a salient category before I can talk about the household. So the, I argue one of the book's arguments is that the rise of police force of the police force and, pen, and penitentiary system is rooted in a liberal property framework. And that in many ways, the policeman was introduced to, to not only police a free society, but to produce a free society and freedom in the middle of the 19th century was increasingly being defined in terms of the freedom to hold property, you know, in the, in in the Lockean sense. And so I take that argument and I, and, and I apply it to a variety of sites, as you just mentioned. And one of the places where the policeman is introduced to protect are men's households, that households are generally a type of property that, the policemen, and for that matter, the prison system are intended to protect. So, for instance, one of the problems that Baltimore, that many, that citizens and residents of Baltimore were facing was that their lives, their home lives were being disturbed in any variety of ways before the introduction of a police force. And so many of these people, especially, again, white men who would label themselves citizens in their letters, would write the write the mayor and write the city councilman or the, of, of that, who represented them. And they would complain that they were living under siege. And, you know, so there was a more... Some, it, these were smaller places in terms of population numbers than we might be accustomed to today. Uh, and certainly a lot of these people had a more intimate relationship with their, their representatives and people would just actually write directly to the mayor who would then respond. And so there's all these letters of people just complaining that they're, they were being assaulted, that their homes were being invaded. And, and they would say, well, we need or at the time they would say we need more night watchmen, uh, which was the, in some ways the precursor to the policeman. And over time, these complaints would grow, grew loud enough that the city would intru- introduce, the Baltimore City municipality introduced a professional police force in the 1850s. And, and I argue that this police force actually protected ordinary ha- householders, and in particular white male householders, to, it protected them, but they, it did so in a way that empowered them to have more control over their households. And so... This should not be a surprise to anybody living in 2018, but the, the state, the municipality, I mean, 
when I say the state, I'm referring to the municipality in this case, it underwrote the power of the individual householder to protect his family from external harm. So the policeman would police the streets and would prevent those assaults from happening as best he could. But once the assault happened in the house or against a house or a home, to be more uh, precise, then a the householder had a right to protect his home. And, in, and they began, they called it the castle doctrine, right? Like that a man had the right to protect his castle. A man, uh, a man can protect his own castle. So they worked hand in hand in that way. Is that so? And you want to know more about like what are some individual stories where this happened? Uh, sure. If you have an example, that would be fine. But I'm I'm interested in so so we have this right of the castle doctrine, and we have this right to protect your home, and this something that's not precisely the same necessarily for black Baltimoreans. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of, um, yeah, bring those stories of, of vigilantism to in conjunction with the racial story that you're also telling, maybe. Right. Ab- absolutely. So the, the police system is introduced formally in the 1850s, but more informally, it's being kind of rolled out in a variety of ways before that. And as I mentioned, it's, they are protecting, you know, the police system is supposed to protect householders to uphold their rights. And the problem for many free black households is that mainstream society views them not as independent, but as criminal. And so free African-American householders and free black men in particular, they do have some right to their own households. And the courts in Baltimore and in Maryland uphold some of those rights. And, you know, there's a famous case, but there's a notable case in the Maryland Court of Appeals that does exactly that. It acknowledges that a black householder has certain rights in the same way that we might identify a white householder. But most of those rights that black householders had were only acknowledged when it came to black invaders or other men or other black men or black individuals who intruded upon their household rights. So what happens is, is that when a white person say invades a black home or attacks a black householder or assaults a a, a so-called dependent of a black householder, be it a, a, another, a man or a woman, it, then the courts in a variety of ways, not just the courts, but like the, the municipality, the policemen and the, the, the jail system, they support in a variety of ways the, the white man who has attacked the black home. And that is largely because free black men did not have the right to testify against any white person. Any black person could not testify or in court or outside of court against a white person, but also because the assumption was that the black household had been disorderly or had been a brothel, even if it wasn't one of those things. Uh, they still wrote the black household as criminal and the white invader as legitimate. Okay, so you're talking a little bit about these perceptions about um, these black households and black men in particular, and your book is making an argument that at heart, this is not simply a story of um, 
how we typically think of um, racism and white supremacy occurring during this period of time, but rather that it is in fact inextricably um, intertwined with our understandings or with, with the times understandings of liberalism and how people are defining freedom. And this is not a terribly elegant version of this question, but I was wondering if you (laughs) might talk a little bit about that, about how those things connect and about how that is a little bit different than we normally think about it. Right. So this book is much more about freedom than it is about slavery. Um, You know, as I mentioned earlier, the choice of Baltimore had, had a lot to do with the free black population, but, but free being a critical, um, a, a critical, a critical component of why the demographics of Baltimore was so interesting to me. <clears throat> and so on the one hand, I argue that the police force is introduced to protect freedom, to both protect and to produce freedom. It is an institution of a free society. However, I also argue that it is actually black freedom that is being criminalized more than black slavery. And so, you know, with slavery, you have an institution of racial control that already existed. But what do you what happens when you remove that institution and you instead you just have free people of color? And that is where I think the crucial story of policing um the, in many in many ways, the de- very depressing and tragic story of American policing comes in. So with slavery, you have a police system, but once you remove slavery, now you have the institutions that are dedicated to freedom that police that, that are being used and deployed against free black people. And so I argue that it's actually, this is very much a story of freedom. And because it's a story of freedom, it sort of undermines many of our not narratives of progress that we usually associate with those stories. So instead of just thinking about the 19th century as a world in which more and more people are gaining rights and more and more people are becoming free and things are in that sense progressing, we should also look at the fact that sometimes those stories of gaining rights are intertwined with the stories of mass of like police brutality and mass black incarceration, because it is free black people who are being policed and who are ultimately ending up in prison after emancipation. You know, so it, it does that, does, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question precisely, but so I see this. So stop me if I'm not, but I see this story ultimately as one that undermines some of our meta narratives of freedom. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, the story of American freedom is intertwined with the story of mass black incarceration and, and racial mass racial policing and police brutality towards African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that you talk about in the book, and you are answering the question here, but you talk about how at the heart is a um, anxiety, a, a white anxiety maybe anxiety is not quite the right word, but um, perception that black Americans will be incorrectly free or will not. um, They'll abuse their freedom. Right. They'll yes. Or, or to to be more precise to use the terms I already used that they will not use their property. Well, Mm -hmm. okay. And so this is at the heart of that, that the rise of the police force and the way that policing is occurring. 
Correct. Yeah. So, so to, to, to circle back to what I said earlier, like the police force is designed to protect pr- property. However, the people who are defined, that also means that the people who are increasingly being defined as criminals in the society are those who are abusing property in a variety of ways. So at the same time that the police force is created to protect property holders, those who are at least perceptively abusing their property, either by having disorderly households or by refusing to work and, and like not, you know, not be, not being industrious wage workers. And instead then perhaps they're vagrants, perhaps they're begging for money, perhaps they're stealing, um, the police force is intended to protect property holders by getting rid of those who don't use their property well. And then the prison system is designed to, in theory anyway, I mean, you know, this is the theory, less the practice of re- so-called rehabilitating those criminals into more reliable property holders. This is actually one of the reasons why the penal populations of the mid 19th century were overwhelmingly male because the paradigmatic property holder was a a man in 19th century culture, political, legal, economic, social, and otherwise. The problem with black freedom is that at least not the problem in actuality, but the problem in the minds of many white commentators political leaders, householders, white householders themselves, was that black men in particular, but black people more generally, would not use their property well. And so, but they also believed, at least before emancipation, that this was an inherent problem. This was something endemic to black identity. And so they thought their institutions, like in particular their penal institutions, were rather useless for free black Americans because they couldn't be rehabilitated. So there wasn't much to do with them. Um, but the lar- so instead they would just throw them back onto the street and, or have them, or in some cases sell them into slavery over time. Like one of the things that happens parallel to the black, I'm sorry, to the rise of a professional police force are the introduction of laws to sell black criminals, free black criminals into term slavery and, and, and in practice, that was abused, and all, many of them were actually sold into slavery for life uh, outside of the state of Maryland into the Deep South. So I'm arguing that this story of black freedom, uh, you can see this in the pre-Civil War period in, the, in what I just described, and you can also see it in the post-Civil War period. Once you remove the institution of slavery as an outlet for black criminals, that's when you begin to see them flood into the prisons. But the story is roughly the same, which is that black freedom itself is being criminalized and black property acquisition and property holding is considered a paradox or a contradiction in terms because the very act of owning property kind of triggered white Americans into thinking that black crime was occurring. Does that answer? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that does. And so I, I'm curious about a couple of different things. Um, your book talks about uh, what happens after uh, the Civil War when suddenly selling people into slavery or um, and some of the other tactics that were used in response to or, or used as the punitive measures other than imprisoning people um, are no longer options. Uh, 
and also talks about kind of how the vigilante system changed after the war. So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that. And then I was also curious to maybe um, do a little bit of comparisons, which is not necessarily within your your books, but I'm curious sure. if you might tell us a little bit about those anyway. Comparisons with like other 19th century places or with the modern day? With other 19th century places. Well, l- well let's start with what happens after the war in Baltimore. Okay. So emancipation comes to Maryland in November of 1864. The state of Maryland uh, remained in the Union. And so the the Emancipation Proclamation and the the broader Union war effort that eventually becomes one to free slaves, or at least becomes a liberation army, like that doesn't affect Maryland. Maryland actually emancipates on its own, you know, I think because a lot of lawmakers read the tea leaves and also because of Republicans through, through a variety of means, fair and foul, take control of the state government during the war. And they pass and ratify a new constitution that becomes operational in November 1, 1864. And so that's when emancipation comes. So emancipation is the critical moment in the story, more, less so than the Civil War itself. But, you know, it, obviously not everything changes in November of 1864. It, most of what the Constitution, the new state constitution does is leave in place all of the laws that existed before slavery had been, had been abolished. So you still have judges selling black thieves and black arse, or accused black arsonists into slavery um, through the, you know, and, and they even like are doing so after the the 13th amendment is ratified. So there's a variety of, you know, these terrible, horrible things happening in the state of Maryland between 1864 and the, the end of the decade. But, you know, in the book, what I talk about is how over time, like this new regime uh, that is rooted in not just freedom, but property freedom that, that all men in particular have a right to earn a wage and, and head a household is introduced by anti-slavery liberals, liberals with the, in the classical sense, during the 1860s. And while there is this kind of reactionary force in Maryland um, consisting of slaveholders, one that existed elsewhere and throughout the slave South after the Civil War, while they still are trying to re-implement the old regime, the new regime does prevail. And I think we should take seriously the fact that that new regime prevails. Uh, I think too often stories of racial policing and mass incarceration are written in are written to say that, or at least they're they're conceptualized as slavery under a different name. But you know, as we see in like popular culture through like the the documentary Thirteen and Thirteenth, and you know, and and more generally, like as people are coming to cu- coming to grips with the origins of mass incarceration. The the idea of incarceration and, crim- and criminality is attached to our fundamental documents of freedom, as you see in the 13th Amendment itself, that it frees everyone except for those who have committed crimes. They still are eligible for incarceration. So anyway, in Maryland and in Baltimore in particular, you have the growth of this new liberal regime. At least not it's not new in the sense that white people are suddenly acquiring these rights, but it's new in that it deracializes the legal code. So between 1864 and 1868, you have the removal of all of these kind of pieces of legislation that 
excluded black people from the rights of freedom. And, if it's, and when I say rights of freedom, I mean that precisely in terms of rights. But as you do that, black men in particular are being like defined as they always have been as criminals or as people who are not well equipped to hold these new rights. And it is at that moment that we see them flooding into the Maryland state penitentiary. It is at that moment that we see the rise of a new black house of refuge for young black children, but especially black boys. It is at that moment that we see the numbers of black people in the almshouse dramatically increase. So one of the things that struck me is much of the literature about mass incarceration and and some of the places that I'm a little bit more familiar with, for example, in Texas, in the post-Reconstruction era, lots of the themes that you're talking about as a existing in, in antebellum Baltimore there, there are echoes of those in post-Reconstruction Texas, for example. Uh, there are people, uh, lots of Black lives are criminalized and then are imprisoned, but imprisoned and sent to places like penal farms, for example. And, are, and sometimes those arguments look exactly like the ones that you referenced of saying sort of here's a new way to re-enslave people or to kind of have a continuation of agricultural slave labor uh, through convict leasings or, or penal farms, for example. And there's also, of course, a certain amount of extra legal um, violence. A, a lot of extra legal violence is coexisting with police forces. Usually these are not um, urban police forces, but police forces nonetheless. And so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that and if if those are echoes of something that's similar, if it's fundamentally different, if this is about um, kind of place and the difference between an urban area and um, places that are maybe not having urban police forces yet, you know, mo- large portions of of somewhere like Texas or Louisiana or whatnot don't have those urban police forces in the the wake of Reconstruction. But if you might just talk a little bit about that comparison. I, I think that, I mean, I think there's more than echoes. I think a lot of what happens in Baltimore anticipates what happens in the post-Reconstruction South. And you just, you know, it's because the institutions are already there. And because, I mean, when I say institutions, it's because the police force and the penal system has already been created to police and protect freedom. Um, and because they're more robust, and because a lot of this stuff, uh, there's such a large free black population already, like we see these events already playing out in Baltimore and in Maryland several years before they play out elsewhere in the South. But everywhere in the in the in the ex-slave South, in the in the re, in the post-Reconstruction South, you see the dramatic rise of black penal populations. And you see the introduction of these convict leasing programs and, and the, the farms that you talked about. Um, and it's actually one of the striking things. And you can go back to some of the older books in the literature, like, you know, 30, 40 years now, like Ed Ayers' book um, on uh, Georgia and policing and incarceration in Georgia in before and after the Civil War. You have penal populations in the pre-Civil War South that are almost overwhelmingly white. I mean, they're like the Mississippi's prison is like 98, 99% white. And then by within five years of emancipation, it is overwhelmingly black. So you do see a lot of these things happening elsewhere in the South. Um, and I do think that the story in Baltimore, it's just, it's just a lens through which one can see the story. I don't see the story as simply this is happening in Maryland 
nowhere else. And it's not useful for understanding anywhere else. In fact, I think it's, I think what Baltimore and what Maryland allows me to do and allows us to do is just to see the explicit relationship between professional policing and amateur vigilanteism much more clearly just because they had the institutions already and because there were so many, there was, it was such a multiracial city already. So Mm -hmm. that makes sense. But at the same time, I also think that a lot of the story is applicable to the North as well. I mean, you just, you know, when you look at like the racial demographics of New York and Pennsylvania's prisons, before the civil war, I mean, they already were experienced, like they already had were criminalizing and pathologizing blackness in a variety of ways. And there, and in those prison populations, many people of color dramatically over were over, overrepresented. Um, and so I think this is very much a story of the nation. And it's by no means a story of about the South or the ex slave South. It's, it is a story of the United States as anyone living in 21st century America, paying attention to prison populations and police brutality can attest. This is not a story that simply can be discarded or ex- like to just one region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I had another question actually thinking about comparisons um, to the North. And that was where do where do immigrants fit in or or another possibility would be thinking about where class fits in. And in particular, um, uh, uh, some of the literature that I know a little bit better about rise of police forces are in cities like Chicago or cities that are industrializing where um, immigrant populations form a problematic uh, group of people for elites perceptions of their property rights, for example. And so again, you're seeing some of these similar uh, narratives, but not necessarily with the exact same dynamics. And so I was wondering if you might talk about kind of that relationship as well and where they fit into your story and where class fits in, because of course, police themselves are often working class. Um, well, so there's there's two there's several moving parts here, but I'll just talk more broadly about the role of immigration and, immig- and immigrants in the the police and prison and the prison system, both before and after the war. And then you know you can push me on other stuff <laughs> if I don't get there. So, absolutely, like, the the majority, if not the majority, but certainly immigrants represented were dramatically overrepresented in the Maryland state penitentiary before the civil war. And they remained overrepresented after the, after emancipation as well, even as the prison became much more dominated by black prisoners, it immigrants were still very present. And in particular, in this period, we're talking about Irish immigrants, um, some English and some German immigrants, but especially in a city like Baltimore, you have a, a large Irish population, and and they are dramatically over, over represented in the Maryland Penitentiary. They become less so as the prison becomes more and more black, but they're still present. However, it's not the same thing. Whereas immigrants were being condemned, and where like in in both characterological as well as cultural terms, it's not the same thing as what's as the condemnation of blackness, to use Khalil Muhammad's term, um, who wrote the book, Khalil Condemnation of Blackness, which actually looks at the relationship between the pathologizing of blackness and 
that of immigrants in and then Chicago actually Chicago and Philadelphia both play I think Philadelphia actually plays a bigger role in that story it's an early 20th century story but I think it is fair to say that while immigrants and especially white ethnic immigrants is who we're mostly talking about in the mid 19th century Maryland like while they are being condemned and being criminalized and being incarcerated and policed in a variety of ways, they still have an avenue to political inclusion that is often foreclosed to African-Americans. And, and so it's actually, a, it's, it's really useful to look at the ways that they are similar as well as different because it can cast in the sharper relief just how, just how much uh, blackness has played a role in American cultural understandings of criminality. Mm-hmm. Well, and one other, to a certain extent, I think the answer to this question might be somewhat obvious, but one other aspect to this question is essentially what are these um, working class policemen who sometimes have similarity to the white folks they're policing, at least, um, get out of their position once they're moving into official police forces. Yeah. So, I mean, the more traditional story about the rise of police forces in the middle of the 19th century, I mean, there's various phases, but the first major phase of police reform in the U.S. happened in a lot of these mid-Atlantic and North and Northeastern cities, and, and as well as a couple of Midwestern cities in the middle of the 19th century. And the traditional story is one that, they were, and it's one that I agree with, is that police forces were sort of weaponized arms of political machines. And so in Baltimore in the 1850s, the police force is actually introduced by the Know Nothings, which is, or, or the nativist group, the anti Catholic, anti Irish um, political coalition that, through a variety of ways, gained and held power. In, from 1854 until about 1860 in Baltimore, and so they introduce a police. Their, their police force becomes a you know a more so a professional arm of, of their gangs of their political gangs. And by gangs, I mean literally like these were groups of people who inflicted tremendous violence upon their political opponents, as well as as I mentioned in the book, their as well as well as uh, black men and women, but. Then, in 1860, you get a new administration. They don't call themselves Democrats. They call themselves reform, the Reform Group. And, you know, this, but this was essentially a Democratic machine that takes control of the city of Baltimore and the, the Baltimore's municipality. And they basically replace all of, their, all of the, the nativist policemen with Irish and Irish sympath- and, and sympathetic policemen um, who then turn around and go to war with the know-nothings who had been abusing them in from positions of authority for the previous six years. So your question had been like, how does, how does class play a role in this? Well, I mean, for sure, this is one part of the story, but the other part of the story is that both of these organizations uh, drive black wage workers away from work sites both both the nativist and later the the more pro irish police forces um you know protect white men more generally in their interactions with black men both of them inflict forms of summary justice or do so alongside 
individual white men and ordinary non non-uniformed white men. So, you know, these things, are, they're just different sides of, of, of a larger and really complicated story where class and race, and then for that matter, gender and masculinity are interacting. Sorry to revert to like very grad school um, <laughs> terminology, you know, to hit the trifecta, if you will, but, but they are all interacting in this way. But I just chose to tell one side of the story, one that I didn't think was being told because so much of the story of class and ethnicity had already been kind of thoroughly vetted in the literature. And in fact, like the way that many historians who first began writing about the rise of professional policing in the 1960s and seventies did it was to talk about it as a form of class control. Um, I think it's obviously a more complicated story than social control and then, then that interpretation gives it, but that doesn't mean that that story is not, you know, doesn't have merit. It obviously does, but I, but I, but I think living as we do today in a world where um, police forces are have become weaponized arms of not just like you know, the, the power structure, but in many ways of like a white power structure, as we're seeing in a variety of milieus, I think it is important to look at this, the more, the racialized side of the story as well. Mm -hmm. So since you've um, brought us to today, can you talk a little bit about how rethinking the origins of the system and the role of race and um, the, our definitions of liberalism should make us think a little bit differently about the rise of policing, the um, mass incarceration system from a present perspective. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I want to be careful here. Obviously there are wonderful policemen and there are like, you know, there are many like, you know, I don't mean to like live in such an overly relativistic world that I am suggesting that police is like, that there is that there's we should abolish police forces. I'm not making any of the more dramatic arguments here, but I do think that this story helps uncover some fascinating and troubling relationships between ordinary and professional white men. And here I'm thinking about, you know, so we have a situation in the United States. And, and especially recently, I don't know when this goes to press, but, you know, so I don't mean to date us by, by giving us, giving you specific markers of time, but, you know, recently there has been an, uh, an outgrowth or a, a proliferation of white supremacist violence. And the New York Times recently ran a story, uh, an investigative report about how many police forces and arms of law enforcement have been caught either unaware or flat-footed, or more generally, have even been complicit in the rise of this white supremacist violence. And a lot of the story focused on the federal level, but there was also some focus on local levels where, you know, whether it was local police forces wanting help from the federal government and not getting it, or more, more, or more generally, them actually just like ignoring the violence or not doing much about it. And in some cases, I think in one instance in Portland, Oregon, they the police force actually like uh, members of the police force actually aided in or, or were complicit in some of this violence. There is this story of how like white domestic white terrorism is, has been largely ignored through a variety of political and cultural 
way, in in a variety of political and cultural ways, and that it has been allowed to proliferate and expand, and there's not, and we don't have a very good response to it. The other side of the story is the one which we, that we've been talking about here, and the one that I think is very familiar to students of both American history and the modern United States, which is the one you mentioned of mass incarceration, of mass black incarceration, of police brutality, and some of these things. So my, I think looking at a story like Baltimore's in the 1850s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s, etc., like I think that actually reveals how those two events, how how white vigilante violence is largely ignored by police, whereas like black freedom is largely policed and violated by police. Those two, those are two sides of the same story. And you really can't understand one without the other. And you really can't, in fact, understand why this white supremacist violence has been largely ignored or allowed to expand and prop and prosper for lack of a better term, um, without understanding that there is a, deep and intimate historical connection between white vigilante violence and the rise of police forces themselves, like that, that the latter built upon the former. And once you see that, then the, the, like the seeming tension between why police forces are paying so much attention to black communities and so little attention to the actual communities that are committing these remarkable and terrible acts of violence in, in a, you know, not just against people of color, but against all kinds of people that, you know, like only then does it become so more manifest more and more clear. It sense? absolutely makes sense. And I think that that's an excellent um, point in highlighting the incredible importance and relevance of, of your book, um, both in understanding this 19th century history and understanding a lot of questions that many historians and I, I hope the American public are interested in about our history in the 19th century, but also well, certainly, today. certainly some, some of the public is interested. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I mean, I should also be clear that, you know, to understand the rise of 21st century, police violence against African-Americans and to understand the rise of like mass black incarceration, you know, that, that is obviously very much a product of 20th and even 21st century history. It's not, you know, you cannot get all of the answers by looking back to the 19th century. You can't even get most of the answers because there's a whole lot of stuff that happened in between, you know, from, from Jim Crow to the, the drug war to a variety of things even more recently, as, as that same New York Times investigative report suggested, that there, there are very specific political dynamics at work um, between the, the Bush and Obama years that help explain why what's happening now is happening. I just think it is worth our while to look back to the 19th century as well, because that is the moment when these police forces and these prisons were first being introduced into the United into U S political and social life. And it's when blood was first being spilled over these matters. And it's also when slavery was coming to an end. And I think that is still very much a part of our story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So before we leave your book, um, I don't want to make too much of a hard turn here, but I am really interested in um, hearing a little bit about your research, which you touched on a little bit earlier. Um, But researching the police, uh, certainly in the 20th century, is sort of infamously difficult um, for many obvious and and not obvious reasons. And then researching... uh, 
Black lives and Black experiences are sometimes easier than others in the 19th century. So I was wondering if you might just talk a little bit about um, what kinds of sources you used and and some of the um, benefits and challenges, so to speak, to those. Yeah, it was hard. I, <laughs> I, I mean, it was what was particularly hard about writing this story, which is in many ways a story as much about of vigilantism and and like kind of of non professional violence as it is one of police uh, professional policing, is that I had to, I, I I wanted to research policing before there was any police force, but that also means before there was any institutional record of any of this stuff. So when I first showed up to the Baltimore City Archives, this would be I don't know two, 3,000 years ago. I can't remember. It was a while. It was a while back. But I, I asked the, the archivist there, uh, you know, and, and I, I cannot emphasize enough how, how like, unprofessional the, the city archives were before the state took them over. It was basically a, a cold, damp warehouse that you could just do whatever you wanted in. And I imagine eventually the city realized it had lost so much of its records and were, they were in such damp, there was such danger that they had to, maybe they should t- take better care of them. Um, and I think that they now take wonderful care of them. Uh, I asked the archivist like, well, I want to write about policing, you know, before 1857. He's like, well, there was no police force. So what are you going to do? I, like, I don't know. I was hoping you could help me. He's like, I don't know. So, so what I ended up doing was I, I read a lot of those. I started reading the the mayoral and city council records, and then I says I mentioned earlier, like that's where you start seeing a lot of letters written by ordinary people, but you also see correspondence between government officials talking about these problems. Uh, you, you know, any nineteenth century historian is going to be very reliant upon newspapers, especially if you're looking before eighteen fifty. So the, the Baltimore Sun, I spent the better part of my youth just reading reading it on on microfilm i'm sure you've had this experience too uh now everything has been digitized so you know perhaps the new generation of scholars don't have to spend their lives getting seasick um spending like their their time in very dark rooms windowless rooms and with microfilm readers maybe they still do i don't know but i um so i spent a lot of time doing that reading newspapers reading these these records and i have also looked at pardon papers which are housed in usually in maryland they're housed in the state archives because that's a state record and you know pardon papers have their own set of challenges because they are very formulaic uh they are clearly written with an objective they but even through those records you start to see like just remarkable stories and and trends, uh, you know, you see both the specific as well and the precise and unique, as well as you see the general and, and um, the more, and the, yeah, more general. Uh, and so a variety of pardon papers, newspapers, uh, city council and mayoral records, uh, you know, which was supplemented with fugitive slave narratives, because that's one of the few areas where you could see black people you know, even uh, for all of their challenges and for all of their biases, these records are also like a, a, an integral component of our, of our way to like look at black, um, just the black experience, uh, especially when you're dealing with policing. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think now. Yeah. I mean, th- those would probably be like some of the more like uh, those in court records as well. Like, but the court records were, were their own problem as I, I think I alluded to earlier there their the the Baltimore City Criminal Court like basically like 
there are very few records available before 1870 um, that have survived through God knows why. But so, so yes, the, the, some combination of those things, and, you know, in writing about both. So I didn't have to contend with say like modern political intransigence that you might expect a 20th century historian of police would have to deal with. Uh, but on the other hand, I didn't have the archive itself. You know, you don't have the Baltimore city doesn't introduce a professional police force until 1857. And even then the records that they left were pretty paltry until the 1870s. Um, and the other thing that I used for the post-war period was the Freedom Bureau records, um, you know, cause, and those are federal. So, you know, those are, and the, I don't know if you've ever, you probably, as a 20th centuryist, you're not, you've not experienced the joy that is the, the, the Freedmen's Bureau records in the basement of the National Archives that are, they've all been digitized. But, you know, those, those also provide another lens into this world of post, at least in this case, of post emancipation. Well, it's an excellent book. And I appreciate you slogging through all those all those things to be able to write it and to share it with us and coming on and speaking with us. But before I let you go, um, I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Uh, well, I'm mostly working on, um, you know, undergraduate <laughs> papers, since we are, <laughs> since we're rapidly approaching the end of, of another semester. Um, and, you know, coming up with creative ways to get students to come to class or at least both incentivize them and, and mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. punish them Sure, <laughs> to do so. But, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm in the very early stages of, of, a, of two different projects. One is the, the, my primary interest right now is to shift gears a little bit and stop looking at people that I <laughs> loathe uh, and don't enjoy spending 10 years of my life with and looking more at populations that I do and maybe have more admiration for, which is not, not to undermine (laughs) my credibility and my, (laughs) my bias or lack thereof, my objectivity. I, I, I'm looking at like uh, slaves in transit and like the mobility of enslaved people in the late, in like, you know, during the antebellum period, you know, during the mid first half of the 19th century more generally. Um, and then there's another part of me that's starting to toy with an idea of writing about some of the stuff I didn't get to do in this story, which is look at like the lives of the, the, the actual lives of prisoners, which is, you know, as I, I've talked much, and I'm sure it's come through in this, this conversation, but much of what I look at are ideologies and I look at them looking at like systems and institutions of power. Uh, and I have not been as interested in looking at like the ordinary lives of the people caught in the, the gears of those institutions. And so I think actually like a social history of prisons in the 19th century is something that hasn't, that hasn't been done like in, in as thorough a way as like it could be. And that's something that I'm also interested in doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm leaving behind Baltimore and Maryland as a specific place. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll be back without question, but I, I think I, it's time for me to branch out and write more generally. <laughs> um about these topics uh so well both of those sound really fascinating i look forward to reading them i look forward to one day having something for someone else to read it as well (laughs) but thank you so much for reading this book yeah i really enjoyed it and i hope that our listeners read it as well and uh thank you so much for talking to us today thank you christine